What is happening, team? Coach Ishak with HawkFit Coaching and Legion Athletics and your host for today's episode of Anabolic Radio. I'm joined today by Brian Miner, head coach of BD Miner. How are you doing today, Brian? <laughs> Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I know we chatted a little bit uh, before we opened the episode up. And um, to start this off, guys, we have quite a treat for you all. For the basis of this episode, we will be chatting about periodization, structuring your training, and different means for which you could achieving progression throughout the course of a mesocycle or training block. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Periodization sounds like a big, fancy, nerdy word, and in the simplest way you could think of it is it's just a means for organizing or structuring your training throughout a given month or, you know, throughout a given year. Um, to add on to that, Brian, would you like to define what a mesocycle is and, um, you know, the basic structure for which... Um, we could create a mesocycle. Yeah, so I mean, a mesocycle is basically, um, you know, often synonymous with like a training block. And usually, you know, a block or a mesocycle is going to be a period of, you know, probably on average anywhere from four to eight weeks. Um, certainly can extend, you know, beyond that, depending on the individual. But Usually within a mesocycle, there is an overall theme of, you know, a set of adaptations that you're trying to, you know, enhance. And, um, you know, like you alluded to, that it's part of a periodized plan that's that's striving to optimize, like, the downstream, like, long-term big-picture outcome. So, like, I, I like using strength, you know, when, when we look at um you know explain periodization because i think it it has more um i guess it has more research looking at it when it comes to periodization but there's you know early stages like you you might focus on a um you know a volume block something where you're focused more on the developmental avenues of strength um you know you're increasing your capacity to um express strength you know through addition you know of, of muscle tissue so um and then you know downstream of that you may have like that that block is intended to sort of potentiate the effects of you know a more intensity or neurologically driven block where you're trying to um bias like I said, the more neurological avenues for strength expression um, and, you know, the coordination at high intensities. And and then, you know, in that phase, it's like, you know, you've sort of dialed back the volume a bit to, you know, a point where you're trying to maintain the muscular adaptations from the prior phase while still freeing up some resources to ramp up intensity a bit to, you know, express or enhance the adaptations that are going to help you, um, you know, make use of that capacity. It's like, you know, you look at bodybuilders that are really muscular um, and, you know, they, they may not be as strong as a lifter who's, um, you know, focused mostly on intensity. You know, they, they could have, um, you know, a lot more muscle mass, but it's like you put someone with a lot of muscle mass and transition them to a more like intensity driven program they're, they're going to see you know some pretty large increases in strength so um and with hypertrophy it gets a little bit less uh i, I think the story can kind of shift a little bit because you're not necessarily using periodization you know as a means to increase strength necessarily you know muscle growth is the adaptation that you're trying to to get and strength is is more strength isn't a, is not an adaptation necessary it's not a physiological adaptation it's like the expression of multiple adaptations you know on the you know morphological front with connective tissue you know muscle hypertrophy and um on the neurological side with you know rate of force development 
voter unit recruitment, I mean, coordination, et cetera. So, um, so one of the, you know, a strength periodized model is going to look more at expressing adaptations, whereas a hypertrophy periodized model is going to be seeking specific adaptations for, you know, a long period of time. And so you're, um, you're managing the variables to, I think, more so make it sustainable in practice than than anything mm. else. Mm. Those are great points. Those are great points. Now, as someone listening, you're probably like, what's a mesocycle? So um, yeah. what's periodization? So this is we're delving far past the point of, OK, I don't have a training program. This is for the people that, you know, you have a training program. You're pretty serious about maximizing, uh, you know, your progress. And um, there are different ways you could structure a mesocycle like Brian just mentioned. You could have a strength-based mesocycle. You could have a hypertrophy-based mesocycle. You could even combine, you know, different types of stimuli. You could have a strength and hypertrophy-based training, uh, training block mesocycle. But, you know, the most important thing to take into account is it helps us also manage fatigue. So with regards to a mesocycle structure, um, we know that it ranges could range anywhere from four to six-ish weeks. And uh, with regards to fatigue management, do you think that it is inappropriate to be sort of reactive with our, you know, implementation of deload? Something that we use more proactively. Um, I think it, you know, it depends on the person, which I know is sort of a cop-out answer on the surface, but, you know, as is, is a whole, I think I would lean more towards the reactive side of things um, because, you know, the, like, performance is sort of your, your bottom line proxy for where you stand in terms of fatigue. Um, and I mean, there's subjective, you know, fatigue. Someone, someone can feel, you know, subjectively very fatigued, but still be performing relatively well. And so, um, you know, there, there's different types of fatigue. And I think how you approach the deload is going to, um, it's going to depend on, you know, what fatigue is sort of leading that race a little bit. Like the, you could be performing well, mm. but your joints could feel pretty beat up and so it's like you, you want to be reactive because that's sort of your bottleneck you know you you, you don't want to wait until like there there's this you know some of the reactive camp is um like okay wait till performance starts to see a dip then take a deload well i would argue you know that that's not always appropriate because i think the longer you train the more like little aches and pains can can start to be what impacts the, the, your productiveness and you know it has residual consequences if you push through it and so um you know i don't like to oversimplify it like just looking at performance but when it comes to how fatigue is impacting like actual like your your state of readiness then performance is is going to be you know a decent um proxy for that and and i think also you know in situations where like an athlete is dieting like contest prep for example i think a case can be made to be a little bit more proactive there because things can kind of go south quickly mm -hmm. <laughs> in those situations you know mm -hmm. um you know if you lower calories halfway through a block your recovery you know takes a hit you know you may you may just want to plan on more regular deloads just to kind of keep you, you know, square throughout the throughout the block, rather than risk, you know, overreaching, um, you know, non-functional overreaching by pushing it too far. Um, so yeah, I think it, it it definitely depends on the situation, um, but. I know for for me personally, it seems the the longer I train, the more like how I physically feel in terms of like aches and pains. And just if I feel, start to feel beat up 
like I know maybe I pushed it a little too far. Um, mm. And I think from a practical side that that works, you know, that's probably true for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, you're not using, you know, metrics that are assessing, you know, um, like, like it, you're it putting all your eggs in one basket for subjective yeah. feedback. Yeah, it's like you, you're not you're not waiting until you feel like you're, you know, the, when people use the term like centrally fatigued or their CNS is fried or something like that. You know, it's those are two different, um, I guess, subjective messages that are that are coming through to people. And you know, I, I like to I like to base an approach when it comes to deload based off of the the weak link in the chain and um because you, you don't want to push too far especially you know when it comes to like if, if you push far get banged up and then you enter your next block and you're just you're sort of in this debt in terms of recovery when it comes mm. to how you feel with your you know joints and whatnot that that can you know, that's not a good situation either. So, mm. um, so those yeah. are great points. I would definitely agree. I mean, uh, fatigue management is half the battle of program design. And for those of you who are listening, you're thinking mesocycle. Oh, what does that mean? So we just previously said it could range anywhere from four to six weeks. And then, you know, generally throughout the course of a training block or throughout the course of a mesocycle, there's only so much fatigue, whether that be central, whether that be peripheral, that you could accumulate before you have to take the time to bring it back down to baseline. So deloads are a tool that are utilized. Um, you could be either reactive or proactively uh, at some point within a mesocycle. And it not only helps us manage fatigue, it also improves our uh, recoverability. So, you know, when we finish that deload, we're able to head into a new training block and we're in a better position from a performance standpoint and we're in a better position from uh, uh, a fatigue standpoint. We're able to express those newfound adaptations that we achieved throughout the course of uh, the previous training block. So that's a great point. And um, to kind of a uh, Take it a step further. What would you say to people who, you know, claim that all oh, periodization doesn't matter and structuring your training XYZ mesocycles don't matter? It's all about just going to the gym and doing the work. And maybe this has more nuance for something like a strength based athlete versus, you know, a, a physique athlete. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, the the support for a periodized plan is certainly stronger when it comes to to strength when we look at you know actual research um when it comes to hypertrophy though it, it is a little bit misleading i shouldn't say misleading but it, it's not as clear um and i think a big part of that is just the nature of hypertrophy adaptations in general i mean they're um you know the time course for putting on muscle, you know, an appreciable measurable amount of muscle is going to be longer than, you know, gaining these neurological, like you could have somebody gain, you know, an untrained individual, you know, gain a significant amount of strength in just, you know, eight weeks. Whereas, um, you know, if you have a trained population that's, you know, looking at the impacts of periodization on hypertrophy, it, it can be pretty underwhelming, you know, in, in both case, you may, you know, if you were to drag out these studies for, you know, two years, you, you may see a more robust difference. And I think, um, with hypertrophy, it's, I, I think it becomes more sort of, as you alluded to a, the objective of fatigue management and just making sure you're setting yourself up for, you know, a productive, you know, road ahead, um, more so than like trying to peak for strength or maximally express, you know, neurological adaptations. So, um, and kind of to your point, when it comes to deloads, it's like, if you, if you deload and then, you know, a couple weeks later, you find you're in a better position than you were before, then chances are you didn't 
deload too early. You know, it's like that. That's mm. a net net positive. So, um, so I think you have to be, I guess, aware of your. You know, look at these these this data that's coming in. You know, with with performance, because I think sometimes people look for like the answer without sort of looking at what's right in front of them. You know, it's mm. you know, okay, should I deload? You know, proactively or reactively. And at the end of the day, it's like you go into the gym, train hard, you deload. Now you're in a better position. You you feel good. Like that's is that a bad that, that is the yeah that's the outcome that you're after. You know, at that point, it's like, is it really like yeah? It's it can be refinement at that point, but um, you know, it's it's not make you know, it's not going to make or break your training unless you go to an extreme. I think so. Um, but those are great points. Those are great points. And I think it, a big part of it is just time, time, experience, and tracking the variables within your immediate control, whether that be subjective or objective, you know, data. But when you look at the, this data, when you pull up your spreadsheet, for me, I track all this with my clients in the spreadsheet. I look at it and I'm able to kind of get a time course for, you know, when they need to prioritize recovery a bit more. And um, I know, you know, we previously touched on overreaching and uh, whether that be functional overreaching and non-functional overreaching. So why don't we go ahead and give the audience some insight as to the difference between those and how leading into a state of non-functional overreaching, um, you know, not only takes a little bit more time to try and get there, but it is also probably, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot by getting there. Yeah, so, you know, the like functional overreaching I sort of like to look at it in terms of like the, the fitness and fatigue model, you know, and it's your fitness is going up. Fatigue might be going like we know that fatigue dissipates faster than fitness. So, um, you know, as, as we train and fitness is, you know, slowly coming up, fatigue might be outpace is going to be outpacing it if you're going to eventually have to deload, um, you know, functional overreaching would be like let's see how far we can push this ceiling for fitness and still allow like fatigue might start to outpace it pretty significantly to the point where your net performance is you know your readiness is down like you you may see a short-term regression in performance but you've also been able to push that ceiling as high as you can then you can take your deload and now your ceiling is a little bit higher um and the you know the difference between the two your performance is going to be enhanced but it, it it's more like okay I'm, I'm willing to accept this short-term consequence of additional fatigue for bringing my fitness level up a little bit further than i may otherwise and i'm banking on fatigue being able to um you know dissipate fast enough to see this net increase um, and then I think for like non-functional would be maybe you push too far where, you know, fatigue levels are starting to come up to the point where performance is, you know, it's, it's down, but maybe it's down to the point where you're no longer, not only are you not able to maintain or, you know, drive up that fitness level a little bit, but you're like so fatigued and performance is down enough where maybe you actually regress a little bit. And so it's like you're you're not getting the return on your investment when it comes to, you know, the the adaptations that you're after because you've you've just sort of pushed that fatigue too high and now it's affecting your ability to, you know, not only drive forward the the adaptations but you're actually seeing a, you know, that that capacity start to come down a bit, um, and it can be a fine line. I mean, I think it's I'm I'm not a huge I guess, you know, sort of looking at the idea of look using like your your bottleneck for fatigue to sort of dictate your your deload approach. I'm not a huge fan of like seeking out overreaching for hypertrophy. Um, mm. Like I, I don't I don't think it's I, I guess in the grand scheme of things like across you know a year, I'm not 
and there's not a way to answer this definitively, but I, I'm not sure in many cases that that's going to be more advantageous because now you're also having to address, like you're you're spending more time having to address that fatigue, or you're um, you know you're having to go to larger means to dissipate that fatigue, and in the process of trying to get those extra few percent on the fitness side, you're you're maybe setting yourself up for you know a hard time going into the next block maybe you're carrying some residual fatigue into the next block because um you accrued you know this more fatigue than necessary in in the last block so I, I like to i guess i like it to be a more sustainable approach i think you know i sort mm -hmm. of look at it overreaching is kind of it's like investing you know it's like you're you're taking a little bit of a gamble <laughs> in some cases hoping for you know a a larger payoff and um you know it's sort of like a a more my approach would be more like a conservative portfolio of investing you know it's mm. like you're 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 in the game but you're not pushing it to the point where you might be risking you know downstream consequences to a large extent so um i don't know if that makes sense but yeah i think it's um, it makes perfect sense. That was a strong analogy. I like that you're conservative. I like to try and make the big bucks. So that's the <laughs> difference in our approaches. Yeah. But I think part of it is not saying like, oh, you don't like to make big bucks too. But, um, you know, I think part of it too is like uh, for me and my clients, when I feel like I've spent a sufficient amount of time with them and we've structured their training and you know, I know their calories are relatively good to support a lot of those recovery processes. Yeah, I feel like, you know, they're, I, I wouldn't say it's not inappropriate or that I wouldn't say it is inappropriate to try and, uh, you know, push for an overreaching phase and they completely try and empty the tank and, mm -hmm. um, you know, just try to aim for progression that week. And it's always going to come down to, you know, case by case, individual basis. But, um, you know, I also just to go back to what you said, you know, you said there's no like two year training studies. Um, and, you know, if there was, that would be great. But, you know, a lot of this, too, is when you first start a training program, um, for those of you listening, you know, a majority of the adaptations that you achieve when you first start a training program are going to be neurological in nature. So your nervous system understanding how to recruit the most appropriate muscle fibers to contribute that to that exercise and um, really just you know, controlling tension throughout the entire or uh, maximizing tension on the target muscle throughout the entire range of motion. These are things that, you know, take a little bit of time. So when you start a training program and you anticipate to see, you know, substantial amounts of muscle growth, just always be objective of the fact that it's also, you know, it's going to take a good amount of time mm -hmm. in order to do that. Yeah. And, um, Great points, great points. Yeah, and just to kind of piggyback off one thing you said, I think the the overreaching thing is absolutely dependent on the individual. I think when I say like I, I prefer a more conservative approach there, <clears throat> I'm sort of looking through the lens of my own training to some extent there. Whereas like if someone's, you know, younger, like very resilient physically and, you know, they, they can handle it and, we're not it doesn't feel like as much of a gamble um then in those cases it's like you know you're you're you might have more to gain there and so um so i think i guess is a not a definitive um rule to to go by but just a a rough guideline is like the further someone gets in their training career the less i may lean on regularly using overreaching you know to within a hypertrophy program anyway mm, mm, great points great points so we've chatted about training structure we've chatted about deloading and now let's talk about progression okay so oftentimes many people fall for the fallacy that thinking more load is better when you know that leads them to you know increase load to the point where 
they can't even control whatever they're trying to move with the target muscle. And um, this is also where it becomes really important to just ensure you're setting up and executing your movements properly. So you're kind of more specific with where you're directing a majority of that tension. And when it comes overload obviously we know we're able to progress through load or weight but there are also other variables we're able to progress through throughout the course of a mesocycle to still you know try and progress the stimulus such as you know whether that be and it'll depend on the type of training program and the adaptation you're trying to achieve but you know generally there's you know you could progress through reps you could progress through intensity you could progress through sets improve control you know same load at a lower rpe you know improved tempo so it's very important to remain objective of the fact that you know it's not always increases of load or weight to try and you know progress throughout the course of a mesocycle brian would love to hear your thoughts there yeah um yeah you know i obviously all all of that's you know i'm in agreement there i think it's it it's an easy idea to sort of fall into the trap of believing like progressive over low when people hear when load is part of the, the title of the, the principle it's it's easy to kind of um you know overemphasize that but um you know i i've ta talked about overload quite a bit um and i think ultimately you know, looking at it from, I think, a physiological level or not not necessarily like the nitty gritty physiology of it, but just looking at it like the external stimulus that you're applying, you know, the the load on the bar, like what what are we. Like, ask yourself, what, what am I doing right now that's. Maintaining. A, you know, relative stimulus for, you know, a muscle group, and so, you know, I like to um look at stimulus both like as an absolute sense and kind of a relative sense and so we you know you, you're going to have to over time increase the absolute stimulus um in order to maintain like the required like relative stimulus like that stimulus threshold in order to you know grow and uh mm. You know, a lot of this, like, you know, progressing in reps is certainly, um, you know, a an avenue people <laughs> commonly take, which they should. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I look at it, you know, I've, I've talked to Kaz um, Hansen a good bit about this. And, um, you know, for the most part, I think we're in agreement with everything. I think sometimes the terminology, maybe we have um, different terminology for things, but the way I've always explained it is, um, you know, overload is imposing a stimulus that's sufficient enough to elicit a positive adaptation. Um, and that that is going to be, you know, there, it, that's not a, a spot on a map. And so, you know, going in like there we know for volume there's this effective range for volume you know you can like use to borrow like mike isretel's terms like your minimum effective volume like your maximum recoverable so it's like we have this this window and we're trying to you know it's like a a bell curve and to optimize gains it's like we kind of want to hang out in the middle um but you know you can you don't have to be progressing the stimulus every session in order to to do that like there's there's some leeway there all we need to do is make sure that we're um in order to make progress that is is make sure that we're doing enough to sort of stay above that x-axis you know if we're looking at the the bell curve um and ideally you know to maximize progress doing enough to sort of maintain you know the middle of that curve as best we can and so um so progressive overload is more i i look i differentiate between the term progressive overload and overload sometimes mm. and 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 that's because i think progressive overload is more your ability to like observe this progression in performance based off of the adaptations that you've 
acquired. So, um, sorry to cut you off. There's there's no principle of progressive overload. It's principle of progression. It's and it's pr principle of overload. But I I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I've I've always heard it as you know. I I think it just depends on who you're talking to. I, and I think in, mm. in some cases it's. I mean, there's significant overlap there, but um, potato, potato. Yeah, um, but I mean, I've always like, yeah, I've always looked at progressive overload is is a principle in itself. But I guess that's sort of meshing the two together. <laughs> um, but you know, the like progressive overload is being able to observe these adaptations through your training. So, you know, and like being able to perform an additional rep, like all else equal, being able to add five pounds, being able to perform an additional rep, not only is that, you know, likely going to maintain, you know, this overload stimulus, keep you above that threshold, but also it's like, it's a direct consequence of those adaptations, if that makes sense. So it, mm. the act of adding the weight and the act of performing the additional rep aren't necessarily what's driving or, you know, causative of these adaptations for, you know, actually occurring, if that makes sense. So um, over time, obviously it needs to happen, but in some of this, you know, people can argue this is, you know, semantics, but um i guess when you look at it in terms of there being this range for for stimulus that can be effective you start to realize that adding weight every single week or every single session like it's it's absolutely necessary in order to give the green light for, for your body to make gains that that's sort of an inappropriate way to look at it um it's it's keeping progressive overload is is essentially keeping pace with your adaptations that overloading training is providing. Um, and so it's like, they're certainly interrelated, but if you look at just the progressive overload side and ignore that range of acceptable stimulus, people can start to get into trouble and, you know, technique can suffer. And, and they're just mm. focusing on the wrong details. They're, they're not letting these adapt, they're trying to chase these adaptations rather than providing an adequate stimulus, letting these adaptations occur, and then that's going to sort of increase that ceiling, which now in order to, you know, recruit the same, you know, place the same amount of tension on those muscle fibers, now you're going to need to increase your stimulus in order to do that. Um, mm. So more is better to a certain point, you know? Yeah. More is better if you can recover from it if you can if you if you can recover from it and i mean you look at you know that that bell curve applies to a lot more than just volume um so i would argue like more more isn't better if you can recover from it if you're if it results in you being on the right side of that curve you know if, if you're and that that's you know one critique i have kind of of the idea of you know the maximum recoverable amount of volume or stimulus would be optimal um and you know there's it depends on you know who you talk to there but with if you're approaching that point where you're training at mrv then it's certainly possible you're you're past the peak of that bell curve you know like i said anything above that x-axis I wish I, you know, could have a visual here, but anything above that x-axis. I'm just visualizing all these yeah. graphs in my head right now. So For just the think audience, of a, you got to tune in on YouTube. Yeah. So if you, uh, yeah, if you just have an x and y axis, and on the x-axis you have, you know, the bell curve emerging. Um, the peak of that curve is going to be where you're making your best progress or your best adaptations. The bottom like the far right of that like you could be doing more stimulus still recovering from it but it'd be suboptimal because now it's probably more of an issue of fatigue um mm. so there's there's a sweet spot there and you know that window <clears throat> you know throughout your training career is going to narrow a little bit but 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I would disagree with the idea that more is better as long as you can recover from it because we know that's not necessarily true for volume. We know that there's, you know, people can still make, you know, in research that's, you know, looked at low volume, moderate volume and high volume and the moderate group is, you know, making the best gains, but the high volume group is still making some gains, then it's, I mean, that, that kind of illustrates that point. Um, so I think it's, it, the question then becomes is how do you know you're making optimal gains? <laughs> you know, how do you know you're in the middle? That's tricky and that, that you know, is when you start to lean on, you know, personal anecdote and, um, mm. you know, your experience as a coach and, you know, it's that point is going to be a little bit different, you know, based on the individual. So. Mm, great points, great points. Everything is individual and context dependent. And um, I've always thought it's a smarter way to ensure that once the quality of work is there, and you know that you know things such as your setup, your execution are standardized. Once you know that the quality is there, then it makes it a bit more appropriate to start progressing through other training variables. But it's very rare that I have a client that I'm consistently increasing, and I know there's different approaches, <clears throat> and people are really fine. I think at the end of the day, the work speaks for itself. But anyways, um, you know, I've always thought it's just a smarter approach to keep quality, you know, make sure that the quality is, uh, you know, the common denominator. And then, you know, you start progressing through different training variables. Mm -hmm. So you're just not accumulating, you know, excess fatigue. And um, those are all great points. And um, I know that, uh, you know, we've chatted a bit about periodization. We've chatted a bit about progression. You're going to have some people that say none of this matters. And, um, you know, I think ultimately the the one thing to always keep in mind is that your training should be fun, your training should be enjoyable, and it should be structured in a way to where you could keep it sustainable long term because, you know, what's the point of going hard on a training program that you follow super consistently only for 12 weeks or 16 weeks only to fall off the wagon and, you know, regress to not even following anything. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts there on, you know, the enjoyment aspect and, you know, fun aspect that training should be. Yeah, I think, uh, it's, it's not always going to be fun. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's definitely not always going to be fun, but you know, if, if you've been doing it a long time, it's enjoyable enough to keep you coming back, you know, <laughs> so that, that's the important thing. Um, and, you know, there's times where it's a ton of fun. Um, you know, I think the longer somebody trains, the more, you know, sort of, you know, keeping things interesting helps keep the individual along for the ride, you know, and, um, and you can do that. Like hypertrophy is a very pliable goal. Like there's, there's a lot of ways you can go about structuring you know, a hypertrophy program and, you know, a lot of different exercises you can use. Um, and so I think in that regard, it's, you know, the, it's easier to keep things interesting and in, with a goal like hypertrophy than maybe it is a goal, you know, like a power lifter, you know, because, you know, unless, unless somebody's injured and they're just trying to do the bare minimum of like the big three, like chances are you're going to be doing those lifts on a regular basis you know um you know multiple times a week in many cases and um or in most cases especially like when peaking for a meet so like that can become pretty mundane but that's also sort of what's required for that goal and so i think with hypertrophy having this larger palette to work with is 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 nice um and mm. i think you know that's something that personally you know i'm starting to appreciate more um, so, and, you know, you kind of talked about, you know, pushing hard and then, you know, making sure, you know, in the short term, if you're pushing, making sure that you're setting yourself up for, you know, success and you're setting yourself up for 
quality training after that. And I don't know if you're, um, I, I just, when you were talking about that, I thought of a, an example. I, did you ever, this may, it's not as popular now, but the small odd squat program, did you ever, have you heard of that before? So it's, it's, it's this Russian squat program and it was really popular, um, kind of within the, you know, strength and bodybuilding community in probably like 2010 to 2014 or, or so. Like it, there was a, there was a point where everybody seemed like had tried small love at some point, but basically it was like this super aggressive, um, like high frequency programs. I think it was four times a week. I think it went like three by three by nine, four by seven, five by six or five by seven by five and then like 10 by three. So it was like just an obscene amount of volume and intensity. And people would sort of see this and they would run it and make ridiculous progress because it was just hammering you with volume in the short term. Um, and a lot of this, like it, that's a prime example of a like an overreaching program. Like it, it was a three week, like the, the base mesocycle was like three weeks long. Then you would just take a week off, <laughs> like just no training for a week. And you'd come back and most people would have, you know, put anywhere from like 20 to 40 pounds on, on their squat, you know, or their bench. Well, 40, not on their bench. It's scale. God but, damn. Well, not on their bench. Um, but like on squat, like I think I, I ran it once. And I think that's the first time I ever squatted 500. I think I was squat. I squat like 475 before that. Ran Smolov. And then, you know, four weeks later, hit a 500 pound squat, which like for like that's for that time period, some ridiculous progress. And so that that's really enticing. People would see these outcomes and be like, OK, I got to try Smolov. And part of it was sort of this. Um, yeah, it's like you, you just people enjoy torturing themselves with this program. So um, but the lesson here is that I don't know anybody who ran that program who continued to build off of that number right after. You know, it's usually like they would hammer themselves with volume. They would see this, you know, robust increase after four weeks. And then it was, they would kind of, some people would jump back in thinking they could kind of pick up where they left off, sort of use that new number as their max. And it never worked out that way, you know? And people usually were still a little bit banged up from it. Like it, it was just a, it was, like Alberto Nunez used the, this was the best analogy I've ever heard for, um, for Smolov. He said, it's like the, the spring break crash dieting for resistance training. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you get this short term fix, but then it's, uh, yeah, it, it never pans out in the long run, you know? And so, um, so yeah, I think, you know, redlining it in your training um can not only burn you out you know pretty quickly but it's it's usually not setting yourself up for success big picture um and there's a time and a place you know there's a time and a place to be assertive and there's a time and a place to you know kind of just cruise along making incremental progress and i would argue you know the majority of your time should be spent you know in that middle ground where you're you know, you're not deloading, but you're also not working at MRV. And, you know, mm. it seems we have data to support that as well. Mm. Those are great points. Those are great points. And it's just like life, right? There are phases yeah. where, you know, things are great and we're able to, you know, give it our all. And then there's also phases where we got to just be aware and pull back on the gas and be easy. And uh, same thing goes for our training. And um, I know you earlier, you said, it's got to it's not always going to be fun. Of course, there's going to be yeah. points in our training where it's grueling and sometimes you feel like shit, but sometimes you got to go in and you got to do the required work. And maybe sometimes you could auto regulate that to a degree depending on how you feel. And um you know, we've spent a majority of this episode talking about periodization 
talking about progression and higher volume and lower volume and higher intensity. And I know it may be confusing for some people, not uh, for some people that don't have, you know, sort of a theoretical construct for a lot of these principles. But ultimately, it's important to keep in mind there's so many different ways you could get to the same end goal. All roads lead to Rome. So you really ultimately figure out what road works best for you based off of enjoyment preference time and of course your goals so great points brian and i know before uh you know we started the episode we chatted a little bit about the importance of exercise selection and how you know more people are starting to realize um you know its value when it comes to training so something we don't have is, you know, studies investigating the long-term outcomes of some of these more quote-unquote optimal exercises. So I would love to hear your thoughts there and uh, the importance of it based on your training level of advancement. Yeah, um, you know, we had, like you said, we when we started the call. Um, talking a little bit about exercise selection, I, I think it seems the the main topic of like the last half decade in has been volume, you know, like volume drives hypertrophy. And I think that can be a pretty it's it's correlated for sure. But, you know, volume in and of itself is it's just a vehicle for like attention stimulus, more or less. And so um, you know, when we look at, you know, these, these meta-analyses, you know, and in, in these ranges, like, okay, 10 to 20-ish sets per muscle group per week on average, like, those, those are reasonable starting points. Um, but I think what, what's sort of gotten lost in that discussion is, like, it undervalues the impact exercise selection can have. Um, and, and so, like, it, I think sometimes people have taken that and assumed like, okay, if it works, this muscle group either, you know, is a primary focus or a secondary focus. You know, if this muscle group is contracting in any way, <laughs> then this counts as a set for that muscle group. And in the research, that's sort of been how it's qualified. Um, and so it, it becomes, um, you know, an application though it, it like you still want to apply it in a in a manner that it was examined in the research so it's not like okay well 10 to 20 sets okay that means i want to do 20 sets for my bicep like bicep isolation and then do a bunch of rows on top of that that would be like misapplying the the principle you're um, gonna get doug miller biceps yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but i think once you start the, the other thing with these volume studies they have to standardize effort. And so most of them, you know, are training to failure. And so once you start to look at, you know, quote unquote, trying to optimize exercise selection, you realize maybe you're not trained to failure every set. Like the, those ranges can, can shift quite a bit, I think. And so, um, and there's really no way of knowing for the person, you know, exactly what that is going to be you know where you're going to land until you you try it but um or you know you're basing it off of historical information you know data on the individual but you know i think um with the exercise selection thing if you in sort of in general it's like if you can optimize your exercise selection and you can get more out of you know, a given set, like, let's say, you know, take like a traditional lat pull down, um, you know, in a lat pull down machine, like a wide grip elbows kind of flared, like versus something like, you know, Kaz has, has talked about, you know, these more um, lat biased, you know, shoulder extension driven movements. Um, you know, one of those, like, if you're looking at what's going to hit your lats more, it's it's going to be the variation that's <laughs> that, that's catering to the the movement that that muscle is going to contribute to you know um, the movement at the joint that that muscle is responsible for so 
you may be able to get away with a little bit less volume, even though they're both like would be qualified as back movements or lat movements. Um, and there's debate there, obviously. The one of them is going to be better for biasing your lats. And I don't think there's like, I don't think it takes a study that directly compares hypertrophy between a wide grip lat pull down and, um, you know, a more, you know, extension driven lat pull down to be confident in saying that, you know, um, at least across like a long period of time. Um, but so I think once you start to optimize exercise selection, it seems that in my experience, I, I feel like I can get away with a little bit less than when I was more haphazard with it. Um, and I also find like with individuals, like I, I'm more, um, I, I still like to give some autonomy to their exercise selection, but, you know, putting more parameters on, on what they can do there, um, rather than like, okay, do any vertical pulling movement and we'll just call it good. You know, it's like that, that, that'll get you, you know, on the road, but it's not, it's not going to be optimal for them. And so, um, so I think, you know, there, there's benefits to it in terms of just a logistical standpoint. I mean, I think you're, if you can perform, um, you know, get more out of each set, you know, perhaps perform a little bit, um, less volume for a, a total, you know, given stimulus for that muscle group, that's good. And also maybe, maybe you've been constrained by time in your session and you could handle more volume and now doing these sets, um, you know, and optimizing them, you're able to, you know, be able to afford getting more volume without, you know, these, these other issues becoming prevalent. Like, you know, if, you, if you're performing an exercise incorrectly, like at a joint, that could lead to some, you know, inflammation and everything like that, which could sort of bottleneck the amount of volume you can actually perform to begin with. And so I think there's, from a longevity perspective, I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, and I think it's, there, there, there's been a large sort of resurgence in acknowledgement that, of the impact that it has. And I think you know, to give credit where it's due, I mean, there's obviously been a lot of, he, he's not the only person that's, you know, had this message, but I think Cass has had a, a big role in that is um, kind of reminding people like, hey, this stuff's probably where we should start. And then from there, you know, assess, you know, okay, what's the appropriate amount of volume for this movement, you know, the appropriate intensities for this movement, you know, based on the stimulus we're after. So, um, so yeah, I think it, it used to be sort of, I, I, I would kind of put it at the the bottom of the pyramid in a sense now, rather than closer to the top. Um, and that, that that can be debated, you know, depending on the, the person, but um, it seems with more advanced training age, it, it does seem to, to have an impact. Um, and I know like in my own training, like being more, having more intent behind the exercise selection, like even though I'd consider myself you know, an advanced train. I mean, I've been training since I was 16 and so I'm 37 now. So it's, it's been a while, but I've noticed more progress, like, especially like the back movements, like those, I learned, like I had a lot of refinement I could do in terms of exercise selection. And I think in the past few years, I've made more progress there than maybe I had in the, you know, seven years prior. So it's, um, so I think that, that, that's good news. If you're, if you're an advanced trainee, who's, hasn't really paid much attention to that or it's sort of been an afterthought i think that that can spur some additional progress just refining your exercise selection mm. man those are all great points those are all great points and uh you know to round uh round everything off guys when we're talking about volume guys and gals we're mainly talking about sets per muscle group per week there's different ways to quantify volume but that's how we're uh we're quantifying it right now or how we're referring to it right now and um you know it's uh it's important to take into the count into account where you fall on the spectrum of your training age or training advancement 
state to what degree you're focusing on optimizing or catering your exercise selection. So, you know, you'll get people that say, oh, optimizing exercise selection doesn't matter. Just take every set to failure. Okay. Um, so I, I never really got those types of comments. I never really understood them because if you're placing yourself in a better position to train said muscle, why would that not lead to a better outcome long term if you enjoy it and you're able to progress that exercise a bit more? And um, what what uh, Brian was uh, referring to earlier was, you know, the, the traditional wide grip lat pull down in the frontal plane with our arms to our sides versus the uh, the more, um, I don't want to say uh, spotlight movement has been, I don't know, this movement <laughs> yeah. is just, you know, yeah. it places us in a better position to target the fibers of the lat, and that is uh, in the sagittal plane with our arm in front of us, pulling through shoulder extension. And, um, you know, it's not that the ladder, okay, or the the... The sagittal lat pull down will provide us with um, quote unquote more lat. It likely will, and you know the wide grip lat pull down will still get some lat from that. But you know the one where our arm path is in front of us will likely provide us a better path of motion. All things to really just take into account, guys. And yes, we love to talk about all these nuances and semantics, but you always have to keep in mind that one, you're supposed to enjoy what you're doing, and two, it's supposed to add to your quality of living. So if it gets to the point to where you don't know what you're doing or you're stressing about XYZ variable, maybe you get a coach, maybe you reach out to someone you could talk to and bounce a lot of these thoughts and ideas off of. And uh, to round off this, conversation do you have anything you'd uh, like to leave the audience with any upcoming you know products projects um well before before that i guess you mentioned one thing that i i want to circle back to um so you know the idea of like kind of going back a little further in the conversation with adding like progression in set volume um you know, one way to sort of explain this idea that I was trying to convey between progressive overload and overload, if we're defining overload as like a stimulus threshold, we can we can say that like a um, adding sets like is it would be more of an avenue to help maintain an overload stimulus or main get you above that stimulus threshold where like unless work capacity is a bottleneck for someone it's that's where i would sort of differentiate it with progressive overload like i i look at progressive overload is this is this enhancement in performance is due to these adaptations so it, like adding sets i don't really consider a again unless like work capacity is an issue i don't really consider a primary avenue of progressive overload because People can add sets with relatively, if, if they have more time, <laughs> you know. Shit quality work too, you yeah. know. Yeah, so like you, you can add sets and it might be, it's increasing your stimulus, but it's not necessarily um, evidence that you've improved or evidence of adaptations. Again, unless work capacity was the adaptation that you're after and, you know, you're controlling rest intervals or trying to, you know, perform a certain amount of work in a certain amount of time. So there's there's caveats there. But um, I think that might help convey that point a little bit better. Um, that, you know, if you're improving in the gym, it's because of adaptations that have already occurred. Um, and with exercise selection and, you know, using, it's not to say adding sets is bad. Like, I think there's definitely a time and place for it. Once you refine your exercise selection, you may find, um, or I guess, let's say you haven't paid much attention to exercise selection in the past, and you're thinking, okay, I think I need more volume now, um, or you've sort of stagnated in your training, and it's like, okay, sh should I add sets to, you know, bump me back up above that stimulus threshold, so to speak? I would first audit your exercise selection before you do that, um, because you may find 
if you can get more out of the same amount um, or potentially even less with a refinement of, of that. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that's something, you know, when we look at these acute training variables, exercise selection and sets, they're, I think they're largely, you know, sets that should be influenced by exercise selection to a large extent. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, mention that. Um, yeah, other than that, I, what was your original question? <laughs> Amazing. That was awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, just anything you'd love to leave the audience with? Um, I mean, not, not, not at the moment. Um, I, I guess I appreciate you having me on. Um, Dude, thank you, know, you for coming on. Yeah, if anybody has appreciate any questions, it. they can, I guess, just hit me up on Instagram or um, websites, myojournal.com. Uh, I'd be happy to, yeah, answer any questions any listeners have. Awesome. Go give them a follow on social, guys. Posting more. And uh, thanks again for coming on, brother. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks.